theyeshiva.net. So welcome everybody, and I want to thank you for the privilege of inviting me to such an important evening and an important event. I'm sure you'll hear more about the special center of recovery in the Holy Land. The way I got involved with this was a very close friend who has two children who both fell prey to the calamity and disease of addiction and uh, did not have the funds to be able to uh, find an appropriate center of recovery. Some of them are great, some of them are lousy, some of them are okay, some of them are horrible, some of them are extraordinary, but all of them cost a lot of, lot of, lot of money. And uh, in great desperation and yearning, he discovered this Aze house in Eretz Yisrael. And two of his children, not one, but two of his children, experienced tremendous emotional and spiritual and mental growth from the abyss of addiction to the blessings and healings of recovery. And uh, hearing about this from his personal point of view uh, compelled me on an emotional level to be to be part of it. Um, I don't know if there's any other center in Israel, there's probably not, right? That uh, takes in uh, addicts, an eight-month program, and literally feeds them and nurtures them, mamish, for free. So number one, it's good for people to have awareness. People have children, nephews, nieces, cousins, friends, relatives, community members. Sometimes you see posts, you see emails, it's important for people to be educated about the alternatives and the possibilities for hope, for healing, and for recovery. Which brings us, of course, to a much uh, larger issue. It's not a larger issue, it's all part of the same issue. And that is our attitude towards addiction and recovery. And I want to, with your permission, address that for a few, uh, a few moments. I'm going to start off with a story about the Baal Shem Tev. It's a very strange story, but uh, I think the story contains profound, relevant depth on this topic. I hear this story from one of my teachers. His name is Yabiyoyal Khan. I heard it from him many, many years ago. I was a young bacher. I was a young man, a student, a yeshiva student. I didn't really understand it at the time. I was amused by the story. I thought it was charming and strange. I didn't understand it. Today, I probably still don't understand it, but I think I understand it a little better. And he taught, told us that there was a tradition among Hasidim that the Baal Shem Tev used to daven. He would pray for very long hours. And there was a fellow who would come every day, or almost every day, to observe the davening of the Baal Shem Tev. Now, this fellow was not a disciple. He was not a student. He was not a chassid. He was not a learned Jew. He was not a simple Jew. He was actually what we would call today an addict. And he was an addict to alcoholism. He wasn't just somebody who said l'chaim from time to time. He was an alcoholic in the fullest sense of the word, which, by the way, also applies to people who say l'chaim from time to time. They just don't call it alcoholism. They call it l'chaim, but that's just often camouflaging a disease, which is sad. 
This fellow was a tremendous alcoholic. And he would stay there for the prayers of the Baal And then when the davening was over, he would go to a bar, what they used to call a kretschma, an inn, a full-fledged bar in Mezhebush in the Ukraine. And he would drink and drink and drink incessantly. He was what they called the classic shikr, the classic inebriated, intoxicated alcoholic, to the point that he was day, on a daily basis smashed and stoned till he woke up, went back to the Baal davening. And right after that, he went to drink. And they once asked him, what's going on? Most people, when they heard a davening from the Baal they went to learn after, they went to daven themselves, they went to do a mitzvah. <laughs> they were inspired to serve Hashem with more enthusiasm. This is what you're doing with the davening of the Baal What's the meaning of this? And the man, he said something very profound. I can't remember, it's many years, if he said it or somebody else explained it, but this was the explanation. Every craving in life is finite. Every taiva is finite. Meaning, we all have cravings, intense cravings. But how big are those cravings? They're all limited. By definition, people are mortal, and our cravings are also finite and mortal. He said, I knew, I can go drink, I like alcohol, but it's going to be a very limited craving, and therefore the satisfaction is always as intense as the craving. You all know it, especially those who have experienced a little bit of addiction in their life, that the satisfaction is always as intense as the craving, and the promise of it seems so powerful before you do it, and then after you do it, it's like... What's next? And tomorrow you need a greater dosage in order to satisfy yet a deeper void and the vicious cycle moves on. And here he said something unbelievably profound. He says, but the Baal Shem Tov's davening touches on the infinite. The Baal Shem Tov's davening touches on the Ein Soif. The Baal Shem Tov was yearning for the infinite and he was touching the infinite. So he said, ah, after that, when I go to drink, I'm not just looking for a drink. The search for the alcohol is so much deeper. It's so much more profound. It's so much more intense. And when I finally get the drink, ah, mechaya. And tomorrow I come back for more. What this person was saying was really, the way I understand it, is something very profound. Addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution. What we always have to identify is, what's the problem? It's very easy to call addiction the problem. It's easy. He's an addict. She's an addict. Our community is full of addicts. The problem of addiction we hear more different, we hear every day about. That's the problem. Of course, I know that. But that's a very limited perspective, and it doesn't help us much. Actually, it distracts us from our responsibility. You see, my dearest friends, for the addict, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution. Addiction is the place where she or he runs to in order to ease the pain, in order to numb the anxiety, in order to fill the void. Yes, 
to ease the pain superficially, to numb the anxiety in a false way, to fill the void in a way that's going to come back to haunt him or her. But in his impoverished perception, this is my solution. This is my Mashiach. This is my Messiah. This is my God. Just get me into the casino. Just get me into that website. Just get me into this club. Just give me this alcohol. Just get me this substance. I don't have to elaborate on more. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. That's my solution. That's my false Mashiach, which may last for five minutes, may last for three minutes, may last for an hour or a few hours. It's that high that just allows me to distract myself from who I am and where I am and from all my pain. That's my solution. That's not my problem. Addiction is the solution. You know what we have to talk about? What's the problem that's driving him or her to the solution? Ooh, this is a much more difficult question. It's easy to curse out addiction, and we all know how horrible that is. But that's the facade. That's his solution. Now I want to know, what's the problem? What is eating up inside? What is eating him up inside? What is the worm? What is the disease? What are the thoughts? What is going on in his psyche? What is the problem that is driving this person to the solution? For that, we have to look deep inside ourselves. For that, we have to look deep inside our homes. For that, we have to look deep inside our communities. For that, we have to look deep inside our own neshamas, the way we communicate with our children, the way we communicate with ourselves, the experience that a young generation is getting What is happening in people's lives that is causing them so much untold pain that they are ready to allow themselves to run to this solution, which we call the disease of addiction. I was once speaking with Rabbi Dr. Shia Tversky, Rabbi Abraham Tversky, who is a... uh, one of the well-known gurus in the Jewish world, in the world of recovery, we were together in Boca Raton for a Shabbaton. And I asked him, and I said, Rav Tworby Tversky, you have been 60 years in this field. What did you learn in 60 years? <laughs> you know, he smiled. What are you supposed to tell him? It's like the convert who comes to Hillel wants to learn the whole Torah on one foot. I said, I'm not asking for everything. I'm just asking something meaningful that you learned in 60 years of dealing with addiction. And he told me something very, very deep. And he said, 60 years of experience have taught me that the addicts among us are usually the most spiritual and the most sensitive. We often look at them and say, the dregs of society. He said, it's the contrary. Everyone has pain in life. Everybody experiences pain. But many people just know how to dismiss the pain. Everyone experiences hypocrisy. Not everybody, but many people. A lot of people experience lies, toxicity, abuse, dysfunction, to one degree or another. But many people know how to just gloss over it and distract themselves in easy ways. But those who are the most spiritual among us and the most sensitive among us, their needs are so much deeper because they need truth. They need to be really, really connected. And when they don't have that, 
that void is so much more accentuated, it's so much more powerful, it's so much more painful. They can't just ignore it. They're too sensitive. What others don't feel so deeply penetrates them to their deepest core. What others can just ignore, they can't. They just can't live with it. And the anxiety becomes so overwhelming, they have to take extreme measures in order to give themselves just a few minutes of calmness, a few minutes of tranquility. It's because of the depth of their spirituality that for them to fill the void takes much, much more because the void is so much more acute. The void is much more powerful. And I think what he was really saying, and I think this is really true, is, and I hope this comes out nicely. Well, it won't come out that nicely, but I hope it comes out fine, is we look at certain people, those are the addicts. They need a home. We're all addicts. We're all addicts. Who sitting in this room doesn't have a void? Who within us, who, who doesn't suffer from some type of anxiety? Who is not dealing with stress? Who is not dealing with something disturbing in your life? I can't say all of us, but, but many of us. And even those who are successful and live productive lives... There are profound voids that we have, and we try to escape them. And one of the greatest voids, one of the greatest voids, is what the Baal Shem Tev and his students would call the void that's created as a result of self-consciousness, which was born right after Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. What does it mean, a tree of knowledge? What did they get to know? they got to become self-conscious. Before they ate from the tree, they were very conscious, but they were divine conscious, meaning they saw themselves as part of infinity. That's why they can walk around naked and not feel weird, because if you're a manifestation of Hashem in this world, what's the problem with walking around without clothes? I'm not embarrassed by my pinky. Why should I be embarrassed with any other part of my body? On my arm, I put on tefillin. Why should I be embarrassed with my arm when I'm wearing tefillin? Why should I be embarrassed with any other part of my body if it's just a manifestation of godliness in this world? What happened when they ate from the tree of Das is they became self-aware, they became self-conscious. So what's the first question Hashem asks Adam and Chava? Ayeka. Where are you? Why didn't they have this question before? Because somehow... No animal has this question. No tree wakes up in the morning. All the trees go to sleep now. They're not like us. We have nightlife. Trees follow God's rhythm of nature. The birds are sleeping. Everybody is sloughing now. Nobody wakes up in the morning and like, who am I? Why am I? To piddle or not to piddle, that is the question. Why am I not a cat? Why am I not a frog? They're just part of the symphony of creation. Humanity, from the moment of the Eitz Hadas, became self-conscious. I'm always looking where I fit in. Do I fit in? I come to a wedding. I come to a bar mitzvah. Can I just melt away smoothly and easily and be part of the experience? I come into a class. Can I just sit there and not even feel myself? I teach for many, many years. One of the things that drives me crazy is that when somebody walks in, Everybody turns around. I could be saying the most mesmerizing story, but everybody turns around. You want to come in and you will see. Everybody turns around. 
it's like so I become self-conscious. The poor person who walks in, Esht becomes self-conscious, but the only seat is in the front. So now he has to walk till the front, and he's sitting here for the rest of the hour, and I'm looking at him. The guy can't even hear a word I'm saying because he's thinking about where he or she fits in into life. This feeling of self-consciousness accompanies us everywhere. Who am I? What am I? What am I feeling? What am I not feeling? Do you like me? Don't you like me? Am I angry? Am I not angry? Am I secure? Am I not insecure? Whoa, 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 whoa. Before the Eitzadahs, the I was just part of the divine I. It was all good. But now I'm trying to invest in an ego that doesn't really exist because ego means easing God out. And I'm trying to find a place for something that doesn't exist. So God says, Ayeka. And at that moment... Man went into therapy for the last 5,000 years and we're still trying to experience some type of recovery. We're still trying to heal. The light of Mashiach, the light of Geula that's filling the world now is the light of recovery. What's recovery? What's the problem with addiction? The problem with addiction is it distracts me from my self-consciousness, but it doesn't help me go above my self-consciousness. It just distracts me that for a few moments I shouldn't feel the pain by literally numbing, numbing it. What's the real recovery? The real recovery is when I reach a space where I transcend my self-consciousness by really discovering that that self is just a channel for infinity in the world. And people who are more sensitive to this truth, feel this void of self-consciousness more than everybody else. They can't ignore it. The iPhone doesn't work for them. For all of us, we go in an elevator, instead of looking at people and saying, hi, how are you? You right away take out your phone. Right? Whenever you're distracted for a moment, you're feeling anxiety, we have immediately something to ease the anxiety. But people who are more sensitive and people who are more ruchnizdik and people who are more acute with the void that exists in the entire cosmos since the Eitz Hadas, they just need so much more, especially if they experienced abuse and dysfunction, especially if they experienced trauma, especially if the messages they heard in their youth really play with their soul and their heart. And now there's two different worlds that come together in them, a world of idealism and a world of corruption. And they mamish don't know how to find themselves. So they take drastic measures to just numb that pain for a few moments. And the only way we as a community can confront this is, is if we can acknowledge that what they're experiencing is just an exaggeration of what all of us are experiencing. And then I can tune into this person I can be there with this person and for that person. This alcoholic, he wanted the Baal Shem Tov's davening. In fact, he was feeding off the Baal Shem Tov's davening. He was feeding off that infinite quest of, from the Baal Shem Tov is what was really igniting him. Just, he didn't know how to daven. He didn't know how to connect to infinity. The Baal Shem Tov knew how to melt away in infinity and daven. That's why the Baal Shem Tov came to the world, to teach us how to heal from the Eitz Hadas, to be able to look at God and say, Ayeka, where are you? I'm right here with you. 
That's where I am. Instead, other Mauritians started to give a whole pilpul that I ate and I went in hiding and I'm hiding and everybody is hiding. But this Nebach, this Shikr, didn't know how to do that. So he takes the search of the Baal Shem Tev, and what does he do with it? He goes to the bar, he goes to drink, which really means that addiction is the solution. And the problem is much, much, much deeper. Which also is telling us something very powerful. And that is, we have to speak about recovery. We have to speak about centers of recovery. But we have to speak about something else. And that is preventive medicine. What are the most powerful things you can do in your home, in your family, in your community that will help people not end up in this abyss? For starters, for starters, once people are struggling with it, we have to create conversation about it. Somebody mentioned before that the stigmas around this are very, very profound to the point that so many people are afraid to open up. They're afraid to get help. And if they often will speak to somebody, people who are uneducated will judge them and sometimes cast them further into the abyss. Some people live in hiding for decades. I get emails on a daily basis, people who are prominent people in their communities, but they suffer terribly. On the outside, they're functional, they're prominent, they're distinct, they're distinct, distinguished people. On the inside, they're rotting away. They don't have who to talk to. And I see how scared they are. They're sending me an email. I don't even know who they are, but they'll never sign their they, Some of them do sign. Many of them don't sign their name. They can't even trust a person in the email. Sometimes it takes correspondence of six months until the guy says, by the way, the email address is fake. I just made this address for you. And the signature is fake. And let me tell you who you are. And what pains me is, wow, if this person is afraid of sending it from his email, how much shame, how much shame engulfs such a person. The stigmas are so powerful. When we can't talk about things in a real way, in an authentic way, how many people just end up in the pit of depression with nobody to address their true angst, their true problems? What about preventive medicine? I want to say three things that I think are very, very important, and people often ignore them. Number one, don't wait till your children are teenagers and are exposed to these types of influences. You need to create an environment in your home of profound emotional bonding. Profound emotional bonding. There's nothing more important today for Jewish fathers and mothers than to bond emotionally with their children at the youngest age. Whatever that means, whether it's going for pizza or it's sitting on the floor playing Monopoly or playing Risk or playing chess, throwing frisbees or going swimming, going hiking or reading a book, have the learning together, fabrenging together, schmoozing together, going for ice cream together, listening, being attentive. But fathers need to be emotionally connected to their children at the youngest of age. There should be conversation. There should be an expression of emotion. Family dinners must happen. People have to come home and get rid of their phones and sit around the table with their children, even if for 15 minutes, talk, listen, share experiences. All statistics and researchers show it, that children who grow up in such a home with such bonding and such an environment, the likelihood for them to fall prey 
to horrible, horrible influences which can destroy them emotionally, physically, and mentally and get them into addiction, the likelihood of that is diminished by serious, serious percentages. These are critical, critical messages today. Don't wait till he's 16. Don't wait till she's 17. At the youngest of age, you spend time. This is the most important, important thing to create an atmosphere of bonding that is very deep. You should have a relationship with them because children who have that protection are protected in the real world. I said on Shabbos that um, when there was somebody who was found dead in the field, the members, the sages of the Sanhedrin and the sages of that city would come and they would bring a special offering known as the Egla Rufa. And the sages, the elders would say, Our hands did not spill this blood. We're not responsible for the murder. So Rashi says, did anybody think that the chief rabbi murdered this person? He's saying, I didn't do it, we didn't do it. So Rashi says, it doesn't mean everybody knows they didn't murder him. They said, we didn't allow him to leave this city without feeding him. We didn't allow him to leave this city without giving him a drink. We didn't allow him to leave our homes without escorting him. The question is, how would that help? Let's say you did, let's say you didn't. The guy was killed outside in the wilderness. So if I escorted him, I'm not responsible. If I didn't escort him, I am responsible. What does it have to do? Some murderer found this poor Jew and killed him. How is escorting him out of my home going to contribute to this one way or another way? It's a good thing to escort somebody, but that's not the determining factor of the death. And if I did escort him, I'm innocent. And if I didn't, I'm guilty. And the answer is, and it's a very profound answer, think about it psychologically and emotionally with abuse. Abusers, and I know there are people sitting in this room who know this very well, abusers don't abuse any kid. They make sure to find the right child. If this Jew came to my house and I gave him to eat and I gave him to drink and I escorted him and I gave him his dignity, that abuser may look the other way and say, you know what, this kid I'm not starting up with. That murderer identifies, he knows somebody who's going to fight back. He knows somebody who has dignity. He knows somebody who has stolz. He knows somebody who will speak up. He knows somebody who will not go down easy and the murderer says, you know what, let's go to somebody else. Those bullies, those abusers identify the victim very, very well. When I fortify my child and I give him these resources, even when he comes across that psychological murderer, I'm not talking a murderer physically, I'm talking a murderer emotionally or spiritually, psychologically, when he is fortified, it's a different story. How do children get fortified? We have to fortify them. You got to give them that dignity, that stolz, that emotional connection, that feeling that you're loved that your value is non-negotiable, that you're loved unconditional, that your preciousness in the eyes of God is infinite. And even if you make mistakes, there is nothing that can destroy that preciousness. Which is, I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, why is the last shear that Yaakov gave Yosef, what was it about? Egla Arufa. And that's how Yosef proved to Yaakov that he's alive. Why was that the last year? 630 mitzvahs. Yaakov couldn't choose something else besides Egla Rufa. So you'll say, well, Yaakov didn't know. But the Hashgacha knew. 
The answer is, Yaakov was giving Yosef this message unconsciously. Yosef, you're going to go to dark places, but you have been fortified. You have been fortified. That's what it means that when he saw Poitifra's wife and she wanted him to violate her and be with her, what did he see in the window? You remember? The image of Yaakov. What image did he see? What, there was a poster? What CNN in Egypt was interviewing Yaakov Avinu? Where did he see an image of Yaakov in the window? He saw the image of Yaakov. He had a father. He had a father who fortified him. He could look at her and say, no, I will not fall prey to this abyss. I will not be part of this. When Yosef told Yaakov, I remember the shear of Eglah Rufa, Vatechi Ruach Yaakov Avihem, Yaakov came to life. It's all he had to hear to know that 22 years later, his son Yosef was aligned. That's all he had to hear. He didn't have to hear drushes, pulpulim, messages, whatsapps. No, all he had to hear is, Father, I remember the shear of Eglah Rufa. That's it. Vatechi Ruach Yaakov. That's what the Pesach says. Vayaris ha'agolois. He saw the Egla Rufa. Vatechi ruach Yaakov avim. Came to life. That's our duty today. That's our obligation today. With our students, with our friends, with our nephews, with our nieces, with our cousins, with our communities, with our disciples, and of course, with our siblings, and certainly with our beloved children, and with our beloved grandchildren. It's number one. Number two, as your children are growing up, you got to be present. You mamish have to be present. It's very nice to be liberal and say, my children are responsible, they can have this, they can have that. You have to be present. And in an appropriate and sensitive way, at the right age, you have to speak to every one of your children about the challenges that they may encounter inside themselves and outside of themselves. In the right time, the right person, in the right way, appropriate to this child. Because we live in a dangerous world. And even if you live in a ghetto in Muncie, and the school gets a signature from every parent that nobody has an iPhone, because you have two phones, according to the minute. And everything looks perfectly safe. I promise you that there's one kid in that class who knows more than me about this. And I'm not that naive. (laughs) How do I know this? I know this for my own children. I know this for many other children who come to me at the age of 21. I said, when do you find out about all of this? Fifth grade. Really? Fifth grade, of course. Who? There was a boy in the class. And this is in the best communities, most holy, sacred, religious communities in Muncie, Borough Park, Lakewood, Williamsburg, Meir Shahar, and B'nai Brak, beautiful, holy communities. you got to be connected to your kids, speak to them, listen to them, see what's going on. Don't let them cruise through the waters of life independently. Not just enough to fortify them and say, you go. You be present. Speak, communicate. But the only way you can speak to your children is if they feel connected to you. Don't sever those cords, not in younger ages and not in older ages. And then finally, the third component is 
Parents need to be emotionally healthy. When your marriage is in the dumps, and when you're dysfunctional yourself, your children will pick up on it, consciously or subconsciously, and they will act out based on that. I cannot make my kids happy. I can make myself happy. I cannot protect my children from everything, but I can create a home that is filled with love and trust and camaraderie. When fathers and mothers are killing each other, hollering at each other, insulting each other, denigrating each other, even if it's a cold war like Russia and America in the good, I wanted to say the good old days, but like Russia and America in the old days, maybe soon. If there's a cold war in the house, if Tati is this way and Mommy is this way and the kids know how to manipulate and exploit the differences between them, the environment is not holistic. We must work on ourselves. Don't educate your children. Educate yourself. And then by osmosis, you can transfer that to, the, to your children. This is critical, which comes with one final point, and that is don't be afraid of disciplining your children in a loving way. What happened was there's two streams of thought, and they're both destructive. Some of us grew up in environments and schools where we were beaten. Me personally, I was not. But a lot of you grew up in places where you were frasked. There was one diagnosis for all kids. There wasn't ADD, PDD, ADHD. There was one that's called frask here, frask there. It healed some of them. It destroyed some of them. There was even this beautiful minig of having your fingers, you remember, together with a stick on the fingers because you weren't pointing. Some of you are still traumatized from it. So what do you decide? You decide that with your kids, you're going to go to the other extreme. And what type of home is it? Everything is yes, 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 yes. I'm not judging you, but you're not helping your kids. Because just as kids who grew up in a boot camp that's oppressive are not safe, kids who grew up in a home of permissiveness are also not safe. They don't feel that there are boundaries. Imagine, I take my kids, I put them on the roof of a building, and I say, play football until you knock yourselves out, and I want tackle football. Only one problem, it's 60 stories high and there's no fence. How much fun will that football game be? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not a parent who creates boundaries. I grew up in a school with everybody was oppressing us. In my philosophy, let freedom ring. You're not doing your kids a favor. They're going to be frightened of taking one extra step in this football game, never mind reaching the end zone. Because Khalil of they're looking down what's happening on the other side of the roof. If you build a fence, I'm a chayat. You could run. You could kill yourself. I don't mean kill yourself. You could run and have a great time and knock yourself out. Why? Because there are fences. Good homes have good, what do they say? Good fences, good neighbors make. But I'm saying good fences, good homes make. Discipline doesn't mean anger. Discipline doesn't mean impulsiveness. Discipline doesn't mean trauma. Discipline doesn't mean abuse. Discipline means that your kids know there are expectations. Your kids know that there are values that you teach in this home. Your kids know that this home operates on a certain level of consciousness. And your kids know that they're not going to get away with anything else. I'm not talking about unique exceptions of children who are struggling with something unique and you have to address it. I'm talking on a general level. 
Don't be afraid of creating that environment, not with anger, not with impulsiveness, not because you're crazy and very intense and come home in a bad mood, but coming out of caring, attentiveness, thoughtfulness, and profound and profound love. It's not just enough to address addiction after it happens. Our main responsibility is to create families and communities, schools and homes, where there's an environment that nurtures people in a way that they don't have to run to addiction when they're 14 years old, when they're 15 years old, 16 years old. And even if a school is imperfect, and there are still a few schools that are imperfect, there are still a few homes that are imperfect. We have to work very, very hard to tune into those needs of every single child and identify those weak points so that this child, when he or she grows up, can be fortified on every level, not to chalil v'chas, feel any need to go to addiction. I had a conversation the other day with two Two young children, I mean young, a little older than my mitzvah, in my community, whose families I know very, very well. And uh, they had some questions about certain issues with their bodies changing. And I spoke to both of them separately. And uh, when they finished asking their questions, I asked the first one, if he's experiencing certain cravings in his body right now. And he said, nah, not much, not really. Okay. I said, if this and this comes up, you can always talk to somebody and this is how you should deal with it. Then I spoke to the other child, another family. And the moment I asked him, he said, of course I'm experiencing cravings to this. I said, do you have friends who are addicted to this and this type of material? He said, oh, Oh, yes. I said, are you involved in it? He said, no. I said, why, you don't want to be? He says, no, I want to be. I want to be. But I chose not to. I said, wow. Somebody gave you powerful information. You're not judging yourself. You're not criticizing yourself. You're aware of different experiences that you're having and you're fortified enough to make productive choices. How many children don't begin to have any direction and any guidance in any of the things that I'm talking about? Everything is done clandestinely behind closed doors, conjuring up ideas in their own brain based on YouTube or based on friends and fathers, mothers, mentors, healthy teachers are completely in the dark until years later when things spiral out of control. It's easy to shove this under the rug. Don't. Because when you protect the roots of the tree, the seeds, before it blossoms into the tree, it will translate into all the leaves and all the fruits when it's still under the ground, when it's still beginning beginning to blossom. But finally, there are all those souls who for whatever reason, and ultimately every neshama has its journey, have fallen prey to the disease of addiction. And they don't even know there's a way out. There's mamish, they don't even know there's a way out. 
So the awareness of such a home like Azi's home in Eretz Yisrael is so critical and so valuable. But I also want to say something else and conclude with this because my time is up. And that is, we all meet people all day. We're all meeting people. We meet people face to face. And unfortunately, we meet many more people through this, not face to face. I say unfortunately because face to face is a much better meaning. But we meet a lot of people through these uh, toys and chatskas. And we also meet people face to face. You'll never know how people are struggling. They say the definition of a nudnik is you ask him how you're doing and he actually tells you. We have an unwritten rule that when somebody asks you how you're doing, you don't give a real answer, right? Everything good? Yeah. Everything wonderful? Absolutely, yes. But try this experiment. Next time somebody says, what's going on? Okay. My mortgage, I haven't paid already in two months. I'm struggling with a kid going into school. And by the way, the cleaners just ruined both of my suits, my best suits. Talking about this, there's a leak in my bathroom. My cleaning lady did not show up. My wife is mamish a wreck. I also lost my job yesterday, and my car is in the mechanic. Besides the fact the principal called me that my kid can't come back to school, at some point the guy is going to say, why do you think I'm interested? (laughs) We meet people all the time. We never know what's going on in people's hearts and people's minds. Don't be stingy with warmth. Don't be stingy with love. In this shul, you could find two, three hundred teenagers a day. Sometimes a hundred, sometimes fifty. Twenty-four hours a day. (laughs) Some of them show up at one in the morning. Some of them show up at five in the morning, some of them show up before Kalil Chatzais and middle Kalil Chatzais for the vegetable soup, for the Cholent on Wednesday, for the Cholent on Sunday, for the bagels that come out Monday, for the steak that appears on Tuesday, for the sushi that come, you didn't know this, hang around more, for the sushi that comes out Thursday morning, for the sponge cake and sprinkle cake that come here Friday afternoon, 24 hours. I say to you, not every one of us can build a home of recovery, like these great souls who have a home for free, and feed them and nurture them and get them therapy and get them a job and give them a little normalcy and help them discover their neshama, their chelik, chelik, and dignity. But I'll tell you what you and I can do. There's 300 teenagers here a day. Ten of them say good morning, give them a hug. If you're uncomfortable with a hug, look them in the eyes and say, can I be here for you in any way? You have a beautiful face. Your face is shining. A good vart, a vadam vart. Lift them up, embrace them. I'm talking to the men, I'm also talking to the women. Everyone has influence. Don't be stingy with love, don't be stingy with warmth, don't be stingy with bonding. It doesn't cost any money. Don't be stingy with giving people words of encouragement, of hope, of inspiration. You know today what people have to do? You have to walk around with seeds and just throw the, you know when there's a snow and you walk around with salt and you just throw the salt everywhere. Everyone today has to have a bag with hundreds of seeds of love. Just throw them around. You know why? Because a few trees are going to grow. A few trees are going to grow. I hear from people sometimes, you know, you said this, you told me this, you came here, you said a word. 20 years later, he got his life together. 
because of something I said to him. I even forgot that I said it. Be genuine. Don't be stingy. Build people up. Be ambassadors of love, of light, of hope, of healing, of recovery. We are ambassadors in this world. That's what we are. We are here to be ambassadors. Ambassadors of what? Ambassadors of the infinite power of each and every individual to live a life of deep and profound oneness with infinity, oneness with Hashem, to live a life of Geula consciousness, to live a life of redemption. And I want to congratulate the leaders of this AZ home and all of its supporters and all of its uh, staff and all of those who assisted and will assist it in the future that you should be able to maximize your potential. I know now your capacity is only for 19. I wish you wouldn't have to have more, but unfortunately... You still need capacity for much more to be able to grow such homes and such environments where our young boys and girls can find, can find hope, can find meaning. Chazak, chazak, v'niz chazek. Thank you very much. Thank you.